This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Now and Not Yet. Pressing in when you're waiting, wanting, and restless for more. Written and narrated by best-selling author Ruth Cho Simons and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Welcome to the Grace Enough Podcast. I am your host, Amber Cullum. And today I am sitting down with Dr. Karen Swallow Pryor for the second time. You can go back and listen to our first conversation in episode 86, where we discuss the impact reading good books can have on your journey with Jesus, particularly as it relates to virtue and helping us read and understand scripture. I'll link it in the show notes. But today, Karen, or KSP, as many know her in the online space, is here to discuss the influence stories, images, and metaphors have on our Christian faith, particularly as evangelicals. It's easy to overlook these influences because they often become enmeshed with Scripture and our faith experience. Dr. Pryor dives into a few examples today and points out how these influences have both good and bad implications. I deeply admire and respect Karen. Her devotion to Jesus is good and beautiful. And from that overflows her passion for teaching, writing, and calling all Christians to a virtue ethic that is Christ-like. As we begin, I do want to apologize for some audio issues. Portions of Karen's responses are muffled, but I encourage you to stay committed to the conversation because Karen delivers several thought-provoking responses. Karen Swallow Pryor, welcome back to the Grace Enough podcast. It's great to be back with you. Thank you. You're welcome. I am excited to have this conversation about your newest book, The Evangelical Imagination. And so I hear that title and the subtitle being How Stories, Images, and Metaphors Created a Culture in Crisis. I hear it and I have one concept of what that could mean, but I think some people may hear that and kind of want to run in the opposite direction because they're not sure exactly what you're saying. And so flesh that out for us a little bit. What is this book about? That is a great question. It's a fun title that you get a lot of responses to. It is. Um, you know, the most popular one being the evangelical imagination. They have no imagination or, <laughs> you know, it's one. And then another response is, oh, are you going to talk about George McDonald? Um, no, hmm. <laughs> you know, I mean, because I think it's about Lewis and Tolkien and, you know, that okay. kind of, because if you're an evangelical and you think about the imagination that those are your go-to guys. Now I do mention Lewis and Tolkien in the book, but the book is really about what is called the social imaginary. So this draws on, um, an idea of Charles Taylor and others that we have as human beings living in community, we have sort of like these collective pools of images, stories, metaphors, visions for the good life that are often not articulated. Uh, and they're precognitive, Taylor says. 
but they're just sort of part of the water that we swim in. And so they drive us without our necessarily even knowing it, our expectations, our hopes, and then therefore our disappointments if things don't go as we sort of subconsciously expect them. And so um, those who talk about social imaginaries always say that there is no one, even one person living in a community exists in, in multiple imaginaries. Um, and of course, evangelicalism, you know, how do we even define it? I try in the book, but that's obviously um, controversial and contested. But what I try to do in this book is say, okay, so the evangelical movement has been around for 300 years. What are its main driving stories, images, and metaphors? Like, and what's good about them? Why did they come about? How have they exhibited themselves over the course of 300 years? And also, like, what's gone wrong? As I was reading through the book, I really did love how you talked about the difference between facts and truth. And sometimes we kind of mix those two together and we start to say things like, well, I mean, that's the truth of God's word. Whereas in reality, and one of the examples that you use is just how so much of our thoughts have been formed by Bunyan, for example. And just that idea of we are being formed in our brains, not just by God's word, but also people who write about God's word. And so share a little bit about that difference of facts and truth and kind of what you mean by that. Hmm. Yeah, that's, let's start off with the, with the light stuff on this. <laughs> conversation. Yeah. yeah, so I, I mean, there are lots of ways to talk about the difference between fact and truth. In general, I think most people would agree that, you know, that a fact is something that exists, that's verifiable, that can be proven or not proven. But truth is what gives those facts meaning. Mm -hmm. And that's where stories and songs and artwork come into play. So we can read the Bible and we can understand the Bible um, to a great degree. But then we also, we live in communities, we live in cultures, we live in interpretive communities, we live in imaginative communities. And so we hear stories and we, we see pictures and uh, we hear sermons. And so those things help us to interpret the facts of the Bible in ways that we might not necessarily recognize. I, an example that I use, um, I think I just mentioned it in passing in uh, the book, but it's a good example to kind of explain this, is that the Bible does say that when we stand before God, you know, that, that all things about our, us will be known, and we will be judged, that that's a fact. Mm -hmm. Because as a child, I read a lot of chick tracks, which are kind of, <laughs> Fun. They're, they're, I mean, you know, they're, they're, they have, there are lots of reasons to be wary of them, but what, what effective little works of art they are. Um, and they really stick to you. And so it wasn't for many, many years, decades of my life, because I didn't really even think about it. I always just imagined, um, especially growing up, that time when I'm standing before God and being judged, that what would be known about my life would be played across a movie screen because that's how the chick track depicts it, which is yep. a perfectly fine metaphor for the track to use. But what I didn't realize is that it is a metaphor and that, you know, yeah. that, that the Christians of 2000 years ago uh, who were, you know, learning scripture and, and talking about these things, they weren't picturing a movie screen. 
Yeah. Because there wasn't one. (laughs) And so that's just a very small but simple example. And and it's not a serious one, but just how you can just imagine something and assume something, not because of what the Bible says, but because of some sort of story or image that has accompanied what the Bible Mm. says. This episode is brought to you by The Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on The Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. And so with that comes ways that are really good and help us interpret scripture to know it better and to imagine it better. And like everything else in a fallen world, with it comes some not so good (laughs) ways to interpret scripture. And so why is it that you think so often we're okay diving into how it's good but we just do not want to talk about why it's not so good. Mm, that's a great <laughs> question. And I'm going to reframe it a little bit because I think what I'm really trying to show in this book is the first step is to actually, before we even get to asking, is this a good image or idea that accompanies this or interprets it or is it a bad one, is that I think most of us are at the place where we have to actually just even recognize that. Mm. There are these images, metaphors, and stories, and these visions that go along with what the Bible says and what is um, true. And so we have to act just sort of, there's a word that I use that I draw from the field of linguistics um, that I talk about in the book, which is hypocognition. And hypocognition, it refers to ideas and things and feelings and concepts that are not only underneath the surface, but actually we haven't, we don't even have words for, we haven't named them. Sometimes we can feel something and if we don't have a name for it, we just, we can't really figure it out or process it or know what to do with it. And so there's so much about what we believe that is under the surface is hypocognized. Yeah. So yeah. That, that's where, we, that's where I think I, I want to start in this book and, and leave readers with thinking about. I mean, because I've had so many times, you know, friends that I remember a time in my life too, where it was just like, who cares? You know, like almost just stick your head in the sand type of idea. And I think, whoo, that is super dangerous too. Maybe more dangerous than going ahead and digging in and having to parse through some of the things that you're like, uh, I don't agree with what that person wrote or taught or that, that wasn't so great. I don't know. I just feel like you, this book does a great job because one of the things that you talk about too is how this thread of conversion, like our conversion being a one-time event versus something that was a sanctifying process over time, how that actually changed throughout history. And it's fascinating, <laughs> simply fascinating to look at 
and realize that early on, it wasn't this idea that it was like, yes, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God on January 14th, 1960, whatever. (laughs) And that is the day that I was changed. And so talk about why that matters or maybe how that came about. I mean, just why that's important in the evangelicals thinking. Yeah, I mean, this was really the first chapter that I had to sit down and write because everyone agrees, historians agree, no matter how we define evangelicalism, we go back into history. The movement arose when it was called the Evangelical Revival in America, a series of great awakenings. One of its defining characteristics was an emphasis on conversion, the conversion experience. And so I think anyone who is evangelical, was evangelical, has left evangelicalism, I think everyone would understand that this is a defining feature of the movement. Um, and it arose, you know, in, in a historical moment um, in England when there was a state church. Uh, and so simply to be born meant that you were sort of by default a Christian and a member of your parish church and you would be, you know, christened and then maybe later confirmed. We, you know, different church traditions use those terms like confirmation, mm-hmm. um, reception, because they have a different, slightly different understanding and therefore a different vocabulary to describe it. For evangelicals, it's that moment of conversion. It's being saved or born again, all ideas that I believe in. Mm-hmm. And yet, what I talk about in the in this chapter is how this idea, even this metaphor, because all language is metaphorical, and there convert means a number of different things, and we think about it in different ways. But to have a con- to emphasize conversion, as you um, said in in introducing this question, often has too often meant not emphasizing discipleship and sanctification, you know, and and emphasizing the number of hands that have been raised or the number of cards filled out or the number of people who came forward. And then sort of that's it, you know, just tallying up the numbers and letting people go their way. And then the pollsters come along, you know, a few months or years later and ask these undiscipled people if they check the box of the evangelical, and they do. <laughs> so, yes. There we are. Well, and we slap that like new creation on people, which is true, mm-hmm. right? The Is it Corinthians 5.17? I don't know which one. But, you know, you're a new creation in Christ Jesus, and that's true. But there's still this process there that takes place as you become a disciple of Christ. And so in that chapter, you also talk about like our tendency to just overcorrect. And is that really what we saw here? Because sometimes even in the confirmation traditions, you'll see that people also didn't come to know Christ because right. it was a general thing. So is that what we see? And we just overcourse course corrected? Uh, yeah, I think that's what happened. I mean, the, this emphasis on conversion arose in a time and place in history where it was much needed. Um, and of course, conversion is always needed. Right. I'm not saying that, but the, the emphasis. The one time event. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As a, and emphasizing that has grown in, has been distorted into what, what I just, just described mm-hmm. of this emphasis on, you know, the number of people who raise their hand or come forward or, or say the sinner's prayer. And we, you know, put that notch in our belt Again, I'm speaking in generalities. This right. Is true, you know, this, this, is the, this is the crisis that the evangelical culture has found itself in, or, you know, one one element of it yeah. is emphasizing conversion. And then the other part of this also is that conversion can and does take place apart 
from our conscious understanding or memory. For example, if a child is very small or young, as I was, and uh, receives Christ, we might not have marked that on our calendar. Uh, you know, our parents may not have marked on the calendar. And so we might not remember. I mean, even Jonathan Edwards, I quote him talking about how we just don't always know, I'm paraphrasing here, the day, the moment, the hour. Um, And it is even conversion itself in our experience of it can be a process. And that was true also of of John Bunyan, uh, one of the greatest writers of spiritual autobiography in the evangelical um, history tradition and he just I mean if you read that story of his it's like is this the time is this the time (laughs) because he just has so many moments and so many crises and you know he ends up being you know one of the most exemplary fathers of the of the evangelical faith and but it sure took him a long time well and and I love too that when you talk about how prolific his book has been read I don't remember the exact statistic or, or what it was but it was at one point as well read as the Bible. Is that, is that correct? Am I remembering that correctly? What's often said is that the Pilgrim's Progress is the second most read book or has, was for many years. Uh, I think until Harriet Potter came along or something, but uh, you know, for <laughs> centuries, you know, people read the, you know, if they read the Bible, the second book they read or the second book that they owned in their house would be the Pilgrim's Progress. Part of that has to do with, you know, when it was was published right. in the history of print culture. But regardless of that, it was that influential and it still is. What's interesting is that if you've read the Pilgrim's Progress, I mean, it is a journey. And mm-hmm. so to hold that is so widely read and then still to hold like this one-time event is such a interesting. <laughs> <laughs> it, 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 it is. And I've, I've thought that book and it's always fun to have a conversation of like, because it is controversial at what point was um, Christian converted. Oh, it's good to think about. That's for sure. <laughs> um, well, let's talk a little bit about uh, you're in chapter five. You write about improvement methods and progress. And so I just want to hear your thoughts on how does it benefit the Christian to learn things, learn the origin of things like improvement and methods and such? Yeah, well, this is why I I write books, because I always learn so much in writing them. And (laughs) (laughs) I've written, I wrote about progress in On Reading Well. um, And as you know, my academic specialty is 18th century British literature. And so um, it's kind of a a commonplace idea in 18th century studies that the idea of progress was invented in the 18th century. It's a very much an enlightenment idea. But in researching for, you know, pro- so progress wasn't quite what I wanted to talk about. I wanted to talk about improvement, which is what the chapter is. And I found that the that improvement has an even longer history. It, it starts in the early modern period in England. The, the word itself developed in English and was used at first to talk about kind of improving your land and your property you know, to make improvements that would increase the value. So it's just interesting to think that even the very, the word and the idea of improvement didn't always exist, right? They were, they were new. <laughs> and, and, and now we live in this time, and this is what I talk about in the book, where we just live in a culture where everything is new and improved, supposedly. And it, make a course for that. Exactly, exactly. And, and that idea sells. I mean, marketers and manufacturers and shopkeepers wouldn't 
use that phrase new and improved if it didn't actually work. And it's, it's kind of a joke, but we, we know you walk to the market and, you know, every other package has new and improved on it. And we think that new, newer is better. We think that things can have to constantly be improved. And there is a way in which that is true as we, you know, growth and learning and sanctification, as I talked about before. But that's not quite the same thing as what we see in this, you know, huge industry of like self-improvement books and self-help. And it's become an entire market unto itself. And we're kind of the prey. So it's not so much that we're really improving, but we're being sold an idea of improvement that may or may not be true. Well, and then how do you think Christians have bought into that idea of hook, line, and sinker? <laughs> well, as someone who writes books and speaks at conferences, um, you know, I want to say, you know, I mean, some, you know, again, it, it, good things can be done in yes. wrong ways or for wrong reasons. So I'm not absolutely, anti, yeah, I'm not anti-conference. I'm not anti-book, obviously. Uh, even even my books might be categorized somewhat as self-help, I suppose, along, you know, depending on the categories the publishers or booksellers use. But it has to do with what are we thinking and what are we doing? Are we go, you know, are we participating in these things because we're trying to be a new and improved version of ourselves, or is Christianity trying to be new and improved? And you can look at different people and you know and products and realize and see how they go through different iterations, right? They have different branding. So one person might have been had a platform that was based on this particular doctrine and idea and then develops one that's against that doctrine or idea or one that's against Christianity or about this new discovery. I mean, some of this is just part of being human, but we also, I think is important. And that's why I wrote this chapter. It's important to recognize that as modern consumerist materialist, cult mm-hmm. materialist culture began to emphasize improvement and buying and having the, the newest and most improved Christianity and evangelicalism in particular has adopted some of those ways. And that's, mm. you know, that's where we, I think we have to do some self-examination. It really does so much of it come down to, at least in my opinion, are you getting quiet before the Lord and asking him to examine your heart as you go after some of these things, because I have certainly been guilty of entering into the rat race of, oh, maybe I'll try that. Oh, maybe I'll try that. Oh, maybe I'll try that. When in reality, I was using some of it as a substitute for intimacy with Christ that only he could bring. And if I would have just slowed down, then maybe one of those things would have been beneficial. Mm, Yeah. Yeah, no, thanks for that reflection and vulnerability. I think I think we're all we all struggle with that. And 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 again, what I'm pointing out in this book is is it evangelicalism isn't the only movement or no. guilty of these things, right? I mean, you can look around and see, you know, like the that fitness and dietary trends are also kind of doing the same thing, right? Like you'll feel better about yourself, you'll have a better life if you look this way or eat this way or or whatever. And, and and there may be some elements of truth um, in a healthier lifestyle, but there's no magic bullet that's, that's right. going to fix us. Um, and there's no magical bullet that's going to make, you know, evangelicalism or our faith better, um, except for, you know, the person of Christ and, and really knowing him and being um, close to him and his word, as you yeah. said. Yeah, yeah. 
and a life with him until the day of Christ Jesus, not 30 days back money, <laughs> 30 You're days or right. your money right. back guarantee. Right. <laughs> Mine is postage and handling, of course. That's right. That's right. <laughs> you don't which get is, the five dollars which, which is no way. It's usually more than the product, right? Ask me how I know. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I mean, I think it's good to have conversations like this, and I'm always honestly surprised at how easily we can push back against them. And I think that has almost been a product of the improvement idea that push so far back against fear that we've even taught ourselves that talking about something that's really hard is becoming like, I'm afraid I'll lose my faith if I talk too much about that. I'm afraid I'll lose this if I dig too deep into that. And so that's a whole other interesting side to think about it, to think about, in my opinion. <laughs> no, that this, this is such an important point and insight. I don't want to pass it by because there's actually, you know, when you're publishing a book and marketing it and getting ready for a launch, you do all kinds of things. And so I've got these different graphics out there and whatever. And there's one quote that got pulled from the book um, that I don't have immediately in front of me, but it, it, it gets into to what you were just saying is it says it's something about I'm making the point that we we need to ask these questions. We need to dig. We need to research. And I say something because I'm, you know, my bias, I'm a professor. I like school and formal education. And I say something like you don't have to go to school. You don't have to have a formal education to, to dig in and ask yeah. questions and learn. You can just simply listen to other people. And that's another thing that we're so afraid of doing. Mm -hmm. We're afraid of listening to people who believe differently than we do or live differently or whatever because of what you just said. I think we, we just we're afraid we'll lose our own faith or, or understanding. Uh, and, the, and the point that I make this on this graphic that got a little bit of a, a pushback is that Jesus accommodates all human experience. Mm. Now, I'm not saying he accommodates to or he changes himself for, but he can hear it all, receive it all, listen to it all, carry it all, assist it all. And so if we are to be like Christ, we should be able to listen to the stories and experiences of our neighbors, hear them, carry their pain, feel their pain. Again, it doesn't mean agreeing with their interpretation, agreeing with their solution, agreeing with their beliefs, but we should be able to bear witness to it all just. Mm -hmm. mm. And there should be no fear in that. Yeah, that's so powerful because we see Jesus sit around a table with, you know, I mean, he was called out by the religious leaders for sitting and listening and engaging with people that they thought were going to lead them all astray essentially. <laughs> and yeah. so like that. And we, and we've been trained to be like that. Yes. We're afraid. I know because I get attacked for, do, for doing yep. that. And it does make me somewhat afraid. It makes me hesitant. Yeah. And, and that is just not right. So I'm really glad that you picked up on that point and made it. I think it's really important. Thank you. I do want to say as well, I think sometimes the difference too is what we decide to saturate ourselves in. I don't think either one of us are saying, yes, move into a place where 
now you totally ignore the Christian people in your life who are speaking truth in the ways, in the best ways they know how and saturate yourself in this whole other different train of thought. But you should be able to occupy those spaces and listen without fear that you are no longer going to be a follower of Jesus. Is Would you agree with that? Absolutely. And the only reason we can do that is because of Jesus and the church, right? So that needs to be our center. And if it really is, and we are growing and we are sanctified in those um, spaces and places and in him, then that's what allows us to accommodate those other experiences and, Mm. and listen and receive and bear witness to, and, you know, in God's providence and through the Holy Spirit, perhaps lead them to the one. Amen. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that was good. Okay. Well, (laughs) I can't not talk about this because as a podcaster, I don't know how many shows you've been on so far for this book, but I suspect that every one of them have had to talk to you about the chapter on, I'm going to totally mess up the word, cinnamon sentimentalism really their interest yeah yeah um let's go away <laughs> i mean you you state that cinnamon t- oh my goodness why can i not say this word i need you to coach me in your professorism <laughs> sentimentality i don't know why it's a tongue twister for me but you define it as emotion for the sake of emotion itself. And so why is that a problem for us? I mean, (laughs) I know how I feel, (laughs) but I want to hear your thoughts. Uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So, um, and that definition is really important because I am not anti-emotion. Right. Right. I don't think certain emotions are, you know, a sin, as, as some people uh, out there say. So emotions are good. They're part of what makes us human. I mean, they need to be balanced and disciplined like everything else that makes us human. But what sentimentality is, is, as you said, emotion for emotion's sake. Now, this can be, you know, to give the simple example, if you, you know, you go on vacation and you come back with a souvenir that was cheap and plastic and worth nothing, except you did pay for it, you know, it's worth nothing, but it means something to you because it brings, it reminds you of this experience you had. It, you know, it is a stu- that's what a souvenir is. It just brings back those emotions. Nothing wrong with that, but we need to recognize, I mean, anyone would recognize you're not going to sell this for, you know, a thousand dollars, not to say it's not worth anything except for the emotional uh, value of it. Where it gets a little trickier is when we forget what sentimentality is, or we forget or don't understand that we might be having an experience in church and worship or understanding our faith based on recollection, you know, nostalgic recollection of emotions rather than on doctrinal truth. And so, you know, we can have sentimental feelings toward certain styles of worship music. And again, fine if you like this kind of music because it reminds you of your childhood, but it's important to remember that that that's, you know, might be the reason why rather than the doctrinal truth. The other thing is that we can mistake an emotional experience for a real spiritual one. They're not the same uh, or for doctrinal truth. Or we could, as I depict on the cover 
with the cover art. Um, we could think that, you know, a warm, sentimental, light-ridden picture of white Jesus holding lambs expresses in full the truth of who Jesus is in the gospel. And those kinds of sentimental portrayals of Jesus do not present the truth or the fullness, and sometimes they present lies, and that can deform our understanding of Jesus, the faith, and truth. Yeah. You, you mentioned some of the mistakes, right, that we make with that. And and like you said, I think in some ways, I mean, I can go back to my childhood and because of some church hurt as an adult, definitely when I walk into a liturgical type setting and I hear, you know, songs coming from the hymn book, I want to be drawn back into that place because I remember all of these wonderful things from childhood. And then there's this stopping of, okay, wait just a minute. It's not like everything was sunshine and roses when you were a kid in church, right? Right. Um, and so what I'm hearing is you have to place, put that in its proper place and say like, there's, there can be growth happening in both places, but just because you're remembering this a certain way or holding this certain picture, mm-hmm. you can't put that in a place of perfection. Right. And the, and the opposite is true also, you know, those of us who have the church hurt that you talked about yeah. have to also work through that and say, okay, so the negative emotions that we might have also can be a form of sentimentality. Uh, again, yes. we are, you know, he, as human beings, we have emotions. Uh, God designed us that way. They are helpful, useful, healthy, important, and part of who we are. But it's just recognizing the aspects of our experience that are ruled by emotion, good or bad, and trying to bring that back into balance with Mm. is truer and, you know, and better and more beautiful. Yeah. Is this a chapter where you write about Thomas Kincaid? (laughs) I actually write about him in two chapters. So yes, I write about him in, yes, I write about him in this chapter. Um, so and, I don't want you, I don't want you to give it away because okay, this okay. is, this is the reason why people, if you don't go and read this book for any other reason, I'm <laughs> laughing and it's actually really not funny. It's actually really, really sad. Um, and it's something that is very important that we need to yes. know about, but I'm laughing because I just couldn't believe it. It's like mm-hmm. gross to the point of laughter. Like I don't, it's like a nervous laughter, <laughs> <laughs> but I don't want you to give it away because it, it's crazy. The point that I'm trying to make is, and again, the virtue ethics is another passion of mine. That's what my book on reading well mm. is about. But if you move in any one direction in excess, yes, it will come out the other end. You know, so Ooh. you, yes, yeah. So if we are overly sentimental, we will pay a cost for that. Just as if we also starve our emotions or deny our emotions, there will yes. be a cost as individuals, as communities, and as a church. Yeah, that goes back to that overcorrection. Yes. Good stuff. Okay, well, let's end with this. I always appreciate your willingness to just dive into the deep end because I am a dive into the deep end, even when I don't understand kind of girl. (laughs) (laughs) Just give it to me. I'll process it later, which that could also be an overcorrection. But again... (laughs) Another conversation for another day, but um, you, you don't shy away from the hard parts of our faith tradition. And I think part of that is because you have lived experience with that, yet you always stand firm 
on your belief in who Jesus says he is. And so with that said, you write a chapter that dives into evangelicals fixation upon manhood and womanhood. And you highlight both the benefits and the drawbacks. And so just for the sake of time here, will you share a few of the ways that evangelicals have taught this idea of womanhood and manhood that are both good and not so good? Yeah, of course, you know, a lot of people are writing about this topic because it's just, you know, it's just one, again, I think has become overly emphasized over mm-hmm. the past few years. And and mm-hmm. so it's that whatever truth, um, you know, our maleness and our femaleness has yeah. in the way that God created us has been distorted by excessive attention and emphasis mm-hmm. on, on it. And so, um, so there are other books that write about it more. I didn't want to repeat that, but I really did want to, um, because, because so much of the evangelical movement, as I explain it in the book is centered on the Victorian age, you know, that, mm. which is where some of these rigid, um, categories and stereotypes of masculine and feminine really took hold um and they continue today but we didn't necessarily invent them they're 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 another form of sentimentality actually uh which is a you know a point that i make is like you what you think of as masculine or feminine probably isn't based as an american on what that looked like in 19th century russia among the peasants Mm. Or in um, 18th century France or Georgian England, it's probably based on, you know, either 1950s America, maybe your own family, or maybe the Victorian age, or, you know, whatever it might be. So, um, so the, the point that I'm trying to make in the book is, is to realize that what God did when he created human beings as male and female and set certain limits and orders and characteristics and qualities, those have been so shaped and informed by various cultures yeah. that we often have actually just forgotten what the essence of it is. And the whole point of my whole book, not just on this topic, is not to deny culture or cancel culture, mm-hmm. Um because God, God made us creatures of culture. We, we're going to live in cultures. And I, I love, you That's know, right. culture is wonderful. But it is our job, no matter where and when we live on this earth and in what communities, to distinguish between what is biblical and what is merely cultural. Mm-hmm. And so it's true of that topic and the ones I cover in the book and many others that I certainly couldn't cover, but I hope readers will think about as they finish the book. Yeah. Well, and if we believe, which I mean, as far as I know, I know I believe this and most evangelicals that I know believe this, that the Bible is for all people for all time, then how can we not wrestle through that? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I remember back when I had a conversation on top of a houseboat with, I was a college kid and you know, I don't, I'm not speaking down to college kids, but I definitely thought I knew a whole lot more than I did. But in this instance, it was with my cousin's grandfather, and he kind of went off on a tangent about how that couldn't be Christian music because of X, Y, and Z. And I presented that perspective to him 
of, would you feel that way if you lived in Africa and you were in a chant circle and these people had come to know Christ and they're chanting around a fire, beating their drums, would you say the same thing? And that was kind of an eye-opening moment for him, even in his seventies. And I feel like that's this kind of where we're at with womanhood and manhood and a lot of other topics. Like we have to consider what you said that it's been interpreted differently in a lot of different spaces. But if the Bible is for all people for all time, what does that mean for us? Exactly. That's a great illustration. (laughs) So, well, Karen, thank you so, so much for your work, um, for all that you keep doing. Tell everybody, because now you are writing full time, you'll probably be speaking at different places. Where can they find all of those things? Mm. The easiest place is probably my website, KarenFallonPrior.com. I'm also on all the social media. Well, most of them, I guess, Twitter, um, Instagram, threads. I guess I don't even call Twitter Twitter anymore. But I also... um, At least this week. (laughs) (laughs) Right, exactly. (laughs) Who knows what what will happen next week. And I'm also, um, August 1st, starting um, a newsletter on Substack. And so that would be a great place to keep up with my more long-form develop thoughts um, rather than the quick hits on social media. That's right. Well, Karen, thanks so much. I appreciate you. Thank you for having me. Is your brain hurting? If yes, I hope it's in all of the good ways. If you enjoyed today's conversation, please share it with a friend. And if you decide to read Karen's book, The Evangelical Imagination, will you purchase it using the affiliate link in the show notes? That gives me a small payout at no cost to you. Thank you for listening to the Grace Enough Podcast. Tune in next time.